Welcome to the County Road Bobblers Bobblecast, a fun podcast with a feel like you're sitting in the local pub chatting about the blues to other blues. Good afternoon and welcome to uh, tonight's Bobblecast. It's myself, Dave Witchley, as host. Slightly different than our, our norm. Um, some of the Bobblers have stepped aside for one night only. Um, and we've got uh, Liverpool Echo uh, editor, uh, Dave Prentice and grand old team author. And we're also joined by Everton shareholders, Chair John Blaine. Um, so I think you can guess the topic that we're going to start with. There's been a bit of breaking news tonight and uh, it's slightly lifted a few moods and rightly so it's a, you know it's a, it's a big announcement for the club uh, for the future of the club um and uh, who better than to break the news uh, but uh, Dave Francis uh, so um I'll pass it over to you Dave what, what what's been announced uh, in the echo today <laughs> well yeah I wish it was made a broke the news but it was uh, it was it was a simultaneous news broadcast um, I mean, Evertonians being Evertonians, there was a degree of cynicism at the timing of the announcement, given that uh, Sunday night at Goodison was just so woeful. And I had a number of uh, supporters, including my son, saying, oh, yeah, typical Everton, you know, so putting out stadium news day after uh, a result like that. Now, you know, we know we were actually told on Friday that this briefing was coming on the Monday. So it, it wasn't an Everton plan. It was just a uh, coincidence that we'd, uh, we'd follow such a dreadful performance with this news. But it was much needed. We needed a ray of sunshine after that. And this news certainly provided us. I mean, it's for me, it's a significant step forward uh, in the Bramley Moore Dock project. Um, it's the news that uh, Liverpool City Council's planning officer has presented a 200-page report uh, to the City Council, uh, looking into the scheme in meticulous detail, and at the end of which he has recommended that the, uh, the plan be approved. Now, obviously, the City Council aren't going to just go click the finger and go, yes, OK, that's it, then it's approved. They will discuss it next Tuesday. That's a, an extraordinary uh, planning meeting put aside purely for that purpose. But the belief is that they will follow um, their planning officer's recommendation. The scheme will be approved and it will then go to central government, who I think around about 21 days they normally make the decision on. Um, and if they agree with Liverpool City Council's findings, that's it then. You know, the club can start putting spades in the ground. Uh, we can start uh, moving forward to actually constructing the new stadium. Um, it's great news, like you say. Um, you know, it, it's, it's exciting, to be honest. You know, so we needed something like this. And uh, there's a lot of detail in this report as well. A lot of stuff we've not seen previously. Uh, but the time scale uh, for construction, 150 weeks has been mentioned, which, you know, if everything goes according to plan, they could start construction work uh, late spring, early summer, which means we'll be in the new stadium for the 2024-25 season. Lots of uh, detail about uh, transport links, uh, stuff about Sand Hills train station, work it's going to be done there. So everything just like feeds a sense of excitement that we've all had uh, about, you know, the, the forthcoming stadium. So I don't want to get too carried away. You know, it's a significant step in the right direction, but it's a very positive step. And uh, yeah, after after Sunday night, like I said, we needed it. It was it was very well received. It's. Uh, I've just got to ask you as well. We're, we're big drinkers on the Bobblers. Is, was there anything about putting Moretti on tap or, or San Miguel or anything of that nature? No, <laughs> <laughs> not that level of detail, unfortunately. But no, uh, 
I think we can safely say that there will be, you know, so very well received uh, beers on offer there. I think what we were talking about is when we last met with Everton about this was, was at the Spurs Stadium has those glasses that fill from the bottom and some of the bars and we thought, wow, if we could have some of them. But, but no, I've not seen that level of detail yet. So no, sorry. Is that uh, yeah, the only time the, the only times we've been in that ground since they claim that day they don't, they don't work so <laughs> all right or so maybe we don't want them then well you would know you don't go in the away end I suppose but hey yeah absolutely yeah they don't they, no, it's it, about, I went to Villa Park last season as in the away section I mean I'm generally in the press box but I try that's to what to, I mean yeah yeah I try and go to a few a season I went with me my son and daughter that game and I saw how the, uh, the away supporters are treated and live. Mm. And now it's not something you want to repeat you know, so on a regular basis. But, you know, especially when we got beat the way they did. But anyway. yeah, it always surprises me how detached football clubs in general are from the fan experience. Because it's inevitable, isn't it? You know, you're yeah. a fan yourself. You, 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 you get the dream job working perhaps for a football club. And if you're really, really lucky, the one that you support. And you never get a proper match experience ever again. Because yeah. you're, you're either working or you're hosting somebody from the opposition or sitting in a director's box with, you know, hopefully comfy seats and stuff. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, the old White Hart Lane was a pretty poor away from a fan experience point of view in the sense of corridors and yeah. concourse areas and things. The new one isn't that much better, which is amazing when you think how big the stadium is. It's still very packed and crowded. Right. Um, but hey, that's not our stadium. Will clearly be a lot better, you know. One hundred percent. Third time lucky. We'll build the perfect stadium in the city this time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Funny you say that, John. Um, obviously, from from your your perspective, obviously there's a lot being said about the uh, the corporate seating, you know, and and, and the, you know the potential financial income that that, that could uh, obviously mitigate some of the prices uh, for the for the kind of staggered seats uh, further down, you know, for the likes of me. Who are scrimping and saving to get into the ground? Um, is that something that you, that you are you know really enthusiastic about? Is that something that could have a real big impact on pricing? Um, I, I, I think we, we have to come to terms with the fact that, as Dave just said, we, we hope the stadium will be open for 24, 25 season, which is fundamentally over three years away, isn't it? And and by then, um, ticket prices will have naturally risen anyway. And a, a very simple dynamic is once. Um, you know, demand exceeds supply, the price goes up. And, you know, we have a chairman who's wedded to low ticket prices and he's not going to stick around forever. And, and, and so I can see prices would naturally rise anyway. For the new stadium and the amount of debt that we'll be carrying as a consequence, it's inevitable that all ticket prices will go up. Um, and, and I'm not personally um, of the opinion that because we've got more hospitality um, and, and actually some hugely, potentially hugely expensive hospitality with equivalents of you know, um, player tunnels and things like that. I'm not sure that will necessarily mean that the rank and file of us will get, you know, ticket prices, which we recognise from Goodison. Um, I'm pretty convinced a comparable seat for me is probably going to be perhaps double what it is now. Um, it'll still be amongst the lowest probably in the Premier League, but it'll be a big hike. Yeah. So I think the club have always said, haven't they, that, Dave, that the, the prices will be affordable. Uh, we need to understand what affordable means and perhaps we won't know for three or four years what affordable means. But uh, there'll, there'll be lots of Evertonians who suddenly decide they want tickets and season tickets that haven't in the past when uh, that thing starts rising out of the dock. So, so yeah, prices will go up, Dave, mate. Just 
start saving up now. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got a, we've got a season in hand almost, haven't we? That's the way I'm looking at it. Well, well, the thing I would say is that the guys who I got the match with, who who are all just normal chaps, you know, they're already reconciled to we're going to have a magnificent stadium. I'm going to have a much better view. And these are guys who sort of sit around the halfway line in the upper bullens. So they've got cracking views already. Um, and, and they think it's worth it already without even knowing because the club haven't said what the prices will be. But we all did the survey, I hope. And we can all guesstimate that the upper bullens, which is whatever it is now. I mean, it's Park End, I think, is the most expensive stand. So the, the upper bullens must be maybe 500 quid or something. And it's going to be a thousand quid or more to have that a similar view. But they just think it's going to be worth it, and they'll just pull the belt in and do a bit of saving up, and hopefully get state pensions. And you never know, uh-huh. away they go. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because unfortunately, I I, I live with a, a, a Liverpool um, fan uh, who, who happens to be my younger brother. Um, he's got a season ticket for Liverpool, and you know, same same households. Uh, Stanley Park separates where we go to watch the football, but you know he pays pretty much double that I pay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's you know considered it's the same city and all that kind of stuff. It shows you you know the the impact that this kind of freeze has had over a period of time. Um, so yeah, I mean if you put it in context, Dave, that um, perhaps we'll be paying double in um, four years' time as to what we're paying now, but Liverpool fans are paying double already. Yeah, uh, and that gives you the financial impact, which is why Everton Business Matters does what it does, isn't it? You know, how, how far can you push ticket pricing before you disenfranchise and maybe even eliminate the fans you really want to be in the ground, which are the traditional, you know, families and, and, and so on. So as we get the details about the stadium, where the family enclosure will be, what affordable means, what theatre pricing means what standing means because of course there will be a standing section by then probably it'll be open with standing i would imagine four years away um and and so on so exciting times and building stadiums in this city is something only we do so maybe we should uh we could, there's no one else to learn from is there <laughs> there's only ourselves so. um I'm like sorry, I, I, I'm I'm on my game. I've been on the BBC and I, I've been doing my banks of the I've been doing my banks of the Royal Blue Mersey, third new stadium in the city, and, and stuff like that. So you've got to get the taglines in, mate. You've got to get the taglines. Well, well, but I believe it. That's the thing. I believe yeah, it. Definitely, so. especially in an important week as Derby week as well. It's nice just to throw one of them in there. Um, so finance wise, well, Klopp has, hasn't he? So yeah. well, yeah, yeah. So you know, if one can, then it's good for all. Uh, mm. Finance wise. Um, I think you, you reported, Dave, 500 million was, was the price you're looking at. It, it's going to change all the time, isn't it? I mean, we're working in a pandemic at the moment. Uh, how that's going to affect things, uh, I don't know. All, all I can say about finance, Everton were you know, deliberately vague in um, the, the briefing that they gave us today. Mm-hmm. But equally, they are very, very confident that you know, finance will be in place they can't say too much because obviously planning application has to be granted first and then when that does they then go on to the other uh, funding package but it's, it's safe to say that you know they are very very confident everything is in place they don't want to give too much away uh, but you know we are aware as well of you know where they are with, with the funding situation and 
I'm trying to sit on the fence here and tiptoe around it very, very carefully. But, you know, I'm confident, let's put it that way. You know, so I'm happy, you know, so with the, the way things look, you know, so finance-wise. So I don't think we need to have any concerns about that. Obviously, it helps that we have a, a billionaire who's a you know, majority shareholder of the club who's, uh, you know, so more than happy to, uh, to bankroll, you know, so a large proportion of it. Uh, but no, the club are completely cool. They're completely happy about the funding situation. And I think all Emersonians should be also. As the thanks for that, Dave. As the chairman of the shareholders, then John, um, obviously, is it you know financial expert as yourself? Is it a good time to uh, to lend? You know, we obviously COVID hitters, and there's all this talk of finances being hard and all that kind of stuff. I think it's a good time to borrow. Yeah, I hope we're hope we're not planning on lending anybody any money. Oh, geez. Yeah, I, I think I think Dave's right. I think um, the club will have choices. I mean. It's a bit like Dave opened up with uh, people who think we've orchestrated a planning decision just because we lost a game last night. And uh, <laughs> and I was having some banter with Amy Wilson, who you should all know, and say, well, we have plenty of excuses against Newcastle or Leeds or whatever to orchestrate these things. If that's what we were planning to do. But um, the stadium itself, I think, is going to cost significantly more than 500 million. Yeah. I think, um, it, you know, it, I think every time they... they they, they, they stick a spade in the ground to have a look what's there. They find something that's going to cost us money. So, so I think that's a challenge, of course. Um, but going back when I was speaking to board members maybe a year or more ago, even then they had choices. Um, you know, some large Japanese banks are involved, stuff like that. No doubt there's some interest from a place like China, which may have some political challenges and so on. But having choice is what matters. And, uh, and Dave is quite right. Um, I don't think I've heard anybody who I've spoken to on this other than some podcasters who, who I might get involved with and um, be overly concerned about the funding side of it because the, 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 the thought that um, this would go the way it's gone so far and then we get planning approval you know generic or is or is uh, you know full-time civil servants say yes it's fine you know off you go chaps build it and then we go blub 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 uh, actually <laughs> Um, we'll sit on it for a bit. Uh, I, I just just seems untenable. Um, I challenged Mashiri um, both times I've seen him, met him, um, you know, in a good good meetings, you know, meetings that last over an hour, so to speak. And it's clear he, as Dave says, he's going to put some money in. I don't think it'd be the majority of it, Dave. I think he's going to put in certainly more than £100 million. Pounds. Yeah. And when you think how much he's poured in already and, and, and the share placement that is imminent as well, which is not for the stadium, then they are extraordinary percentages of his personal wealth that he's pouring into the football club. And then, of course, there will be borrowings of, of some many hundreds of millions. Uh, and, and those borrowings will have to be serviced. Um, so you're looking at big chunks of money, maybe, I don't know, it depends on the borrowing size, I suppose, in the end, but 20 to 30 million pounds a year just to pay the interest, you know, type of thing. So, so when you look at the financial viability of the stadium at certain price points, and would it result in us having lots of money to spend on players and the like? That's when you draw the conclusion ticket prices are going to have to go up. Yeah. That and the capacity, you know, maybe people have got the hindsight of pan the pandemic now to say the capacity of, which is fundamentally 53 really, isn't it? Not 52, um, is um, going to constrain us perhaps down the line. But now it looks like a wise decision, I suppose, if we, if we think that uh, it's going to be a while before we can get into full stadiums again. Happy days. Yeah. Thanks for that, John. Um, I mean, the, the, 
I'm just thinking of the the, the cynics few because the, there is always one, you know, especially online, uh, and we've we've kind of uh, dispelled a few of them already with the you know the finance, the timing of the announcements. Uh, there was a lot of talk around um, heritage, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, Dave Dave coined a very good one before, saying that uh, uh, Everton have shown that they, they actually really do know their history. Um, <laughs> I quite like that one, but. Um, well, in, in the article, uh, Dave, is that always your understanding that that, that wouldn't be a, a problem for us? No, I think, I think initially uh, Everton were concerned um, because, I mean, the UNESCO were the initial uh, body, you know, to to object and to, you know, sort of complain about the, uh, the potential redevelopments quickly joined by Historic England and then a, a group I'd never even heard of up until about uh, a month ago, the Victorian Society. Yeah. Apparently have Griff Rees-Jones as their president, which who knew? <laughs> but yeah, they've been like consistent objectors. And Emerson were concerned because, you know, despite what you may think of these bodies, they do exert influence and they have the ability to influence, you know, the population at large on Merseyside that may not be football supporters. I know that seems like heretical almost to suggest that the people that don't follow football on Merseyside, but there are some. Uh, and so these bodies do exert influence, which is why Everton have been have worked really, really hard uh, to try and convince people that this redevelopment will be sympathetic. It'll be sensitive. Uh, they've modified some of the planning application uh, as a result of the objections put forward. And let's face it, we've all looked at the plans and we've read them. And what Everton are doing is actually improving that area, even for those people that love seeing Victorian dock walls and hydraulic towers that may currently be falling to bits. But after the work that Everton have done, they will become visitor attractions. So, you know, Everton have worked really, really hard to try and convince these doubters. UNESCO aren't going to be swayed, you know, so but they probably will, you know, deprive Liverpool of its world heritage site status. Mm. And my argument on that piece you're talking about is who's bothered? I mean, um, you know, so 2004, that was granted to us. And I don't think anybody comes to a Merseyside because we're a world heritage site. I mean, to actually put that into perspective, uh, some of the other areas in the world in, in uh, danger of losing the world heritage site status include Vienna, include the Florida Everglades, and include Jerusalem and its city walls. Now, do you think tourists are going to look at the, the world, you know, uh, heritage site list and go, oh, Vienna could lose its world heritage site status. Now nah, we won't go there this summer. Absolute nonsense. So I don't think Liverpool should worry about losing that status. But the other two bodies, Historic England and uh, the Victorian Society, appear to have been won over by Everton. And they've conceded that, well, yes, OK, you know, the work that you're doing is sympathetic. And they do concede that, you know, football might just be important in a city like Liverpool uh, to the population and to the kind of money it will generate. So, you know, the work that Everton have done has been important and they've certainly convinced those two naysayers that this is a project maybe reluctantly worth considering. UNESCO probably will never persuade them. But like I say, we shouldn't really worry about that one too much. Cheers, Fatou. And I think you, you, you've raised a couple of interesting points there. And I, I've read in the article, um, and you know, speaking to the club on, from a fans forum point of view for, uh, throughout the consultation as well, there was a talk of, of all the positive feedback they did get. You know, there were 2,000 positive comments yeah. that, that were attached to the application. I know that from an international point of view that we've just discussed, obviously there was a joint letter that was sent as well to the, you know, for, on behalf of the, you know, the US supporters groups. Uh, you know, I think there's a genuine real excitement for some of these US supporters groups. Obviously, it's a strategy for Everton at the moment to expand our global reach. Uh, John, do you, do you think this is all 
something that will actually attract people to the city as opposed to detract people, as, as Dave just suggested? Um, well, I think that the business case and the societal impact and stuff like that, that they've done with, you know, independent experts and so on, suggests, you know, there'll be a big, you know, a positive increase in tourism. You know, that's on top of the whatever the claims are. Is it 1.3 or 1.5 billion of boost to the economy and tens of thousands of jobs and so on? You know, going back to the World Heritage thing, I think you're right, Dave, you know, historic England uh, uh, have made a technical objection, in my view, they're fundamentally obliged to object, uh, and and the club have put a huge amount of effort into every step of the way, almost, uh, explaining to them what they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it and so on. And so what that culminates in is we find ourselves in a place now where I personally fundamentally believe that there's a huge body of evidence that proves without doubt, not even reasonable doubt, without doubt, that the, uh, you know, the benefits to the, to the local community far outweigh any heritage losses. Yeah. Uh, and Dave's quite right. You know, a derelict site that literally has a few tugboats based there and, you know, a tower that will fall down eventually will be brought back to life by this project. And, and so inevitably, um, you know, when those cruise liners chug up the, up the Mersey again in the future, and one of the first things they see is that beautiful stadium on the banks of the Royal Blue Mersey. Quite a few of them are going to want to go and see it, aren't they? Um, and and, and if, we, if we're bringing to life the heritage, which we will with the pump towers and, and those sorts of things, then yeah, I think, I think it's, no one ever knows, do they? You just do projections and you can almost make numbers say whatever you want them to make, depending on the assumptions that you've made. But uh, it would be an awfully brave man who... Uh, a turn down this planning application because you'd have to come up with reasons yeah. and it and, and unesco i think has, has made itself non-relevant to be honest you talk about places like venice uh, vienna rather yeah. dave and but but, but, but there's world heritage sites would have been at risk of losing their status for like 30 years you yeah. know and and the thing to remember here is if liverpool's loses its status it won't be because we've built a football stadium yeah. It will be the other things we've done, having made agreements with them and then reneged on them for the good of the city, you yeah. know, building buildings that are too tall or, or, or whatever it might be. So, yeah, I think so, Dave. I mean, we, we may end up not understanding why tourists come to see because to us, it'd be, it'd be like a Londoner never going to Trafalgar Square, I suppose. <laughs> but, um, yes, I think it will be attraction, an attraction. It will. It will. Yeah. Fantastic. Particularly if we're a very good team by then, which will yeah, help. That will help. <laughs> Carlo's, Carlo's got That's us. That's the finger crossing bit, Dave, yeah. <laughs> so the, the big question people are asking straight away is, all right, when, when's it happening? When are we getting this spade in the ground? Um, have the club briefed you at all, uh, Dave, about that? You know, when are we expecting to start the work? Well, I mean, they, they can't do anything until, you know, the local, local council, you know, so gives approval, which we're expecting will happen next Tuesday. And then central governments, you know, Jenrick, uh, as John mentioned before, um, has 21 days, we're told, is the usual, you know, sort of time scale for central government to rule on a, a planning application of this scale. But Emerson didn't want to tie themselves to that time scale, given, you know, the current pressures on the government, given what they're trying to deal with at the moment, you know, sort of nationwide. Um, so there might be a little bit of wiggle room on that. It might take a little bit longer. Um, but provided there are no problems and central government can't find any flaws or any holes that nobody else has seen, um, I think Emerson have tentatively said spring stroke early summer. 
uh, you know, I've heard May mentioned, uh, but they don't want to actually physically give a target because that seems to like, you know, put pressure on them then. They're, they're held to it. And basically, this is not in Everton's gift. It's in, you know, so the local council and central government's gift. But, you know, I, I would say, you know, certainly by by May, I think we would expect, you know, provided, you know, central government don't throw a huge spanner in the works, um, that there should be work starting there. I mean, quite whether that equates to a spade in the ground, I don't know, because there's a huge big dock that needs filling in first. <laughs> I think they'll have a ceremonial, <laughs> someone with a spade, you know. Exactly. Like, no, we, were talking be... about, we were talking about these semantics before and some of the headlines and the stories that we put out at five o'clock. One of the lads said, well, you know, can we say construction work, uh, you know, or building work? I said, well, you know, for me, filling in, you know, so a huge dock does equate to building work and construction work. So, yeah, I think we can safely say that. So, yeah, I think we can, you know, say this summer, you know, I, I can't really say any more specifically than that, but that still gives us, you know, time working to that 150 week time scale that's mentioned in the report to be in there in time for the 2024-25 season. Yeah, because we've got to... So hopefully without uh, having to... You know, so have our first three games away from home and stuff like that, which yeah. uh, I know other clubs have done to give themselves a bit more preparation time. Yeah, we've got to leave some time, haven't we, Dave, for uh, shakedown tests of friendlies and things. Yeah. And and I think the 150 weeks includes contingency as well. So with the following wind, um, yes, we, we, we should be finished and running tests, Dave, in the middle of 2024. So that would be very exciting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, just a bit. And of course, Real Madrid or somebody, whoever's the big thing by then. Yeah. <laughs> of course, that cone, the, the illustrious cone that keeps coming up, you know, they've got a cone on there. Hopefully that will be moved soon. I don't know if they send a new job to move back to the, the shareholders, like a, sim, a symbolic message to say it's, it's happening now. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. So, Probably more pub will do well. So. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. That was, of course, my my fiance's granddad's pub, and he, he renovated that back in the day. Really, selling it on. Yeah, that's a bit of bit of history for you there. So they've still got hold of some of the plans and some of the you know the old stuff from there. So I'm making sure that that's kept to one side because um, mm. it, it may all of a sudden be a uh, worth a bit. <laughs> mm. uh, but uh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll come to that when we get there. But uh, obviously, I've just. Talking about me, uh, my fiance actually, I was bought a book for my birthday, um, and the author happens happens to be on the podcast today. Um, <laughs> so, Dave, um, just for anyone, I mean, you've done incredibly well. For anyone listening that an Everton supporter and doesn't know Dave Prentice, you've done incredibly well to start with. Uh, but can you just give us a bit about your background, Dave? You know, as you know, how did you, how long have you been with the Echo and Report, and um, and then maybe t- tell us about why you, you decided to write a book. Wow. Well, um, given, you know, I, I obviously look, you know, so much more youthful than a man who started his, uh, his journalistic career in the weekly newspapers in 1984, uh, I go back to. Um, went to journal. Well, to, to begin with, obviously, I wanted to be a footballer, as does everybody. And anybody who's ever seen me play will know that was never going to happen. So the next best thing is writing about football. And obviously, big Evertonian always wanted to write about Everton. So I got the dream job, really. Um, I started off in the weekly newspapers, uh, Formby Times, Crosby Herald, Brutal Times, Southport Visitor, uh, for three years on their sports desk, and then went to the Daily Post in um, April 1987, uh, where I wrote about Tranmere, I wrote about Everton, uh, occasionally Liverpool, and then uh, the opportunity came to move over to the Echo in 1990. 
And then uh, I became the Everton correspondent when Ken Rogers, my predecessor, uh, became the sports editor in 1993. And that for me was the dream job. That's what I wanted to do all my life. And so for the space of about 10 years, uh, I followed Everton home, away, pre-season friendlies, didn't miss a single game in that time scale. Uh, it, was always, it was just, it was a dream job, especially given the fact that access to football clubs then was very different to, as it is now. I mean, football clubs nowadays are very controlling. I understand why, uh, because the media demands on football clubs are massively different to how they were in 1987. I mean, obviously, satellite television, you know, the rise of independent, well, the, the internet, you know, so websites, you know, so certainly changed all that. Uh, but for 10 years, that was, you know, so an absolutely a great time to be writing about a football club, given the access and given the intimacy I was able to develop with people at that football club. And as a result, got lots and lots of like, you know, what I think are quite amusing and entertaining stories and anecdotes. Uh, I became chief sports writer 10 years after that, which meant I had to write about the other shower across the park and uh, had the misfortune to be in Istanbul and, uh, you know, so places like that on a historic evening, uh, but continued writing, you know, about Everton. And just while I was sat around the desk, you know, so at work, I would relate some of these stories and people would say, oh, it's a cracker that, that's great that, oh, you need to put these in a book one day, you need to put these in a book. And so I just started knocking together, going back 10 years ago, so 15 years or so, just little stories, little anecdotes, you know, so before these, you know, the occasions and incidents faded from my mind. And I think when I looked at it, I had about 10,000 words, you know, so all put together. I thought, I really need to commit to this. I really need to do it. And plus, my job has changed so dramatically over the last few years. I mean, the young lads that work on the desk now don't recognise the job when I start talking about some of the stories that I've lived through. It's just completely and utterly different to how it was, you know, so when I first started. So I wanted to get that in the book as well as almost like uh, an idea of, you know, so how the world of journalism has changed as much as all of that's happened with Everton Football Club. So tail end of last year, I committed to it, like, right, I'm going to give this a go. I approached publishers, and uh, obviously we have a publishing arm uh, at the Echo uh, Reach PLC. And uh, I had other backups in mind if they'd have said no, but they were, they were very enthusiastic and said, oh, yeah, go for it. I said, well, you know, when would you like it for? I said, well, can you commit for this year? I said, well, what does that mean? Well, it means we need 80,000 words by July. I thought, wow, right, okay, I've got 10,000 words knocked together. Will I be able to do this? I thought, well, I won't commit it you know, entirely yet. I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll see how it's going, and I'll let you know by you know, so March, April, how things are going. But we know what happened then, don't we? You know, so coronavirus struck the world, went into lockdown. I was saving myself best part of two hours a day commute time. So I was able to get really stuck into it. And as a result, it flowed, and I was pretty much done. Uh, by June. So uh, I was pleased with it. You know, uh, it, it seemed to be well received. Uh, it, it sold pretty well. I was told by the guys at Waterstones it was outselling Neville Southall's mind games at one stage, which uh, I was made up by. Although I know what Neville would say if I told him that. He'd just look at me and go, bothered, who's asked? <laughs> but that's Neville for you. Um, so no, I was, uh, I, I was pleased I got it done in the end. And, you know, I, I was quite pleased with the way it's being received. Um, it's just there's so many stories and anecdotes in there I wanted to get out you know, so into the public domain I don't think I've betrayed any confidences whilst I've been doing it I think uh, you know, the stories are honest but equally they're not you know, so particularly sinister or you know, so anything untoward in there but it's, it's a truthful account of you know, so what life was like uh, writing about Everson I'm bringing it right up to the, you know, the present day as, as to where we are now and to, you know, so how I watch football nowadays so yeah I'm, I'm quite pleased with it I mean, it's clear, you know, just just 
reading that book, I think you, you love for Everton, you know, it comes across straight away, you know, and the stories that you've had and, you know, it, pretty much you can tell it's a hobby just as, as much yeah. as a career, you know, and relationships have changed, haven't they? You mentioned about journalism changing, yeah. um, you know, it, people obviously accuse sometimes the Twitter of being the old, the, the clickbaits and, and all that kind of stuff. Why do you think it's changed so fundamentally? Is it the internet that's been the biggest factor and you know, football's wages maybe, you know, the access side? Yeah. Well, well the internet has certainly uh, contributed to the way, you know, relationships with footballers have changed. I mean, I've, I've heard footballers, you know, from only 10, 20 years ago saying they wouldn't like to play now, given the all-pervading, you know, sort of eye of the, you know, sort of phone camera, you know, footballers now can't go for a pint. They can't go and behave the way they might have behaved 10 or 20 years ago without appearing on a website somewhere and being criticised or, you know, worse, you know, being punished. So that's changed. But I think football's popularity has changed as well. Um, I mean, it, I sound like a dinosaur now, but, you know, so when I was, you know, I started watching football in 1975. That was my first game, Easter Monday. And uh, 43,000, 44,000, I think, were there. And we beat Coventry 1-0 uh, to go top of the league. Finished fourth. That's, that's very Everton, that, isn't it? But, um, you know, so great gates then were huge. But then we had the, the football hooliganism problem. And uh, we saw football gates, you know, slides. And, you know, certainly in the 80s, you look at some of the you know, attendances in 82 and 83, and I've, I've been at Goodison when 8,000 were there watching a League Cup tie against Coventry. Um, that famous New Year's Eve game, you know, the 0-0 draw, I think there were only 13,000 there then. So, you know, football did have a problem. Um, and the Premier League, despite what people think about it, was fundamental in changing, you know, the popularity of football uh, and the way in which it was perceived. You know, when I first started going, football was a game for, for young working class males, largely. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that was totally the case, but, you know, that, that was largely the fan base. But the onset of the Premier League, the improvements in football stadia as a result of the Taylor reports and so on, meant that families started going to football matches more and, you know, so both sexes, you know, women and, and men started going. So we started getting bigger and bigger gates uh, as a result, you know, so satellite television we started getting very, very interested and started screening more and more games. And football suddenly became a trendy sport. People wanted to be seen as football supporters. You had politicians, you know, claiming, declaring their love uh, for football teams, that would never happen, you know, so in the, in the 60s and 70s, but, you know, so they, they were doing it now. So, you know, people wanted a slice of football. And so my, you know, intimate little, you know, sort of trots down to Belfield every morning would have a cup of tea with the manager and a slice of toast and talk about things. Physically couldn't happen uh, because, you know, the demands on football clubs were intense. Uh, you know, everybody wanted to talk to the manager and to the players. So they understandably started pulling the drawbridge up, uh, started controlling access to the tra training ground and started limiting the time, you know, so with the managers and with the players. And so as a result, you've got times now where it's very rare that you'll have journalists who are very close to particular players or, you know, to individuals at football clubs, where it was quite a common thing, uh, you know, so only 20 years ago, maybe. So, you know, in a nutshell, really, that, that's it really. That's how, you know, how, how it's changed quite dramatically. Maybe not for the best, I would say. But I suppose I would say that, wouldn't I? Having uh, you know, so lived through what I've lived through. Yeah, especially reading the book. We're going for, for meals with Walter Smith and and the like. Yeah. Sadly, like, there were certainly some tales when I was reading that. Well, to be honest, it always this dismayed me a little bit that everyone thought that Walter was this miserable old jock, and uh, you know he wasn't. He was a great you know sense of humour and really good company, but 
because he'd operated in the Goldfish Bowl at Glasgow, he was very, very good at putting a, you know, a sturdy face on and putting the brick wall up and, you know, basically straight batting questions and things. But you get him away from like a press conference environment. Great company, um, you know, obviously really, really good sense of humour. I just wish he'd been a better manager for us. But, you know, uh, still keep in touch with him now. I still speak to Walter every now and then and it hasn't changed. He's still a really good guy. I believe he's a whiskey connoisseur like yourself as well, John. <laughs> No, well, he is Scottish, so yeah. <laughs> um, so I had a couple of questions asked. Uh, obviously, when when the podcast went out, um, you mentioned before about um, uh, obviously you've covered Liverpool and Everton. Um, obviously, as journalism has changed, you would have seen there's, there's a lot of people who always have this kind of um, thing online to say, well, the echo is more biased towards Liverpool. Uh, football club and Tony um, Sampson from Chicago Toffee wanted to ask some parts of the club don't um, uh, don't feel sometimes clubs it doesn't feel like the, the coverage very balanced nationally uh, and it does seem to be more of a, a sway towards the kind of sky six to coin the phrase yeah. um, uh, what what would be your take on that do you think are you ever under any pressure of, of what you report or do you think this is more of a national issue than a local issue because I'm not I was going to say not whatsoever. Um, we've been accused of this kind of bias for time immemorial, going back to the days of Cliff Finch, who used to uh, Peter Johnson's right-hand man. That when the Echo landed, if it had a, a, an Everton lead on the back page, you put it on one pile; a Liverpool lead on the back page, you put it on another pile. And if the Liverpool pile ever grew bigger than the Everton pile, you'd get onto me and uh, shout at me what <laughs> I wasn't doing my job properly. Um, so no, we, we've been accused of bias, you know, for a long, long time, and I take on board why people think that's the case now. Um, certainly, nationally, it is a problem, and the problem is because Liverpool have got such a huge international fan base, and they do get more eyes, eyeballs on stories because the stories are, you know, are read worldwide. I mean, I'm, you know, while we're talking now, I'm, uh, we've got a tool called Chartbeat which uh, tells you who's reading what at any one time. And, uh, oh, my word, it's quite depressing looking at this. Dancing on Ice cancelled this week is the, uh, the third top story on, uh, on Sharpies. Uh, but, you know, the, the best, in fact, if I just go on to the sports stories, the top sports story, I can tell you now, will be you know, Jordan Henderson clears up Liverpool dressing room fight rumour. Uh, 11,000 people have read that. Jürgen Klock addresses Liverpool rumours. 15,000 have read that. And this is a night that we've uh, released stadium plans uh, story that's the third top story. Uh, you know, 9,000 people have read that so far. Then Virgil van Dijk, then Fabino, then Everton Stadium, another story. Um, so yeah, you know, it's Liverpool do generally generate, um, you know, bigger audiences on their stories. That doesn't mean that we focus on them, you know, so as a result, uh, I'd feel bad about doing that personally, you know, so we don't, you know, so we try and be as balanced as humanly possible. And if you look at the Echo, the print edition every night. Uh, I think you can guarantee there'll be equal number of pages every single night because the guys that put that page together, you know, ask me if they're short of Emerson content. Say, hang on, you know, so we've got one page of Liverpool more here. Can you give us something else? Adding to that as well, is that Liverpool are generally, you know, so in Europe and Champions League action, and we haven't been in recent seasons. So they play more games. Therefore, you know, we are going to have more content, you know, so as a result of that. But, you know, as we were talking before we went on there, a large number of the uh, the sports has got the echo of blues, and you know, so they want to see you know, so blues content out there, and we're doing all we can to try and make sure that you know it's as balanced as it possibly can be. 
but it's a business, you know, so and you know, we need to, you know, so try and justify ourselves financially. And so, you know, Liverpool being the big driver in terms of numbers, um, you know, so I wouldn't say that's the priority, but that's you know, sort of what basically pays the wages. So, but we don't we don't try and focus on one club or the other. We try and be as balanced as we humanly can. Yeah. And uh, I'd feel bad about it if I felt that we were, you know, swaying one way rather than the other. So, you know, people will keep calling us to task and I'm fine with that, you know, because, you know, so that points us out where there may be an issue and we'll address it if we think there is. At the moment, we think we're not. I think we're being as balanced and as fair as we possibly can. What we normally get is, a prop, you know, we get criticised for not doing the same number of podcasts um, about everything as we do with Liverpool. And, but again, the same issue applies that they generally play more games, you know, so that we do podcasts after games and before games. That tends to be when that is. When we're in uh, the Champions League next season, we'll be able to address that. I've, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not touching more because it's going to happen. But, you know, I, I have I have noticed, you know, the likes of Sam and Adam, you know, if they, if, if they do get that kind of feeling that there's a bit of, you know, angst online, they do, you know, they do tend to have that personal approach where they, you know, they, 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 they reach out and engage with the fans. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I've noticed there's definitely a change of approach. Uh, obviously, it was mentioned about the, the, the global reach. Um, and I know that you could probably do a full podcast on this, John. Um, but... What can we do more? You know, how does the, can the local media play a part in helping us get that global reach, or is it just a case we've got to get success no. first? Or no disrespects, but you know, um, global reach—what the hell does that mean, man? You know, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Dave just—I was surprised by Dave's answer because I would have thought the pragmatic answer would be that Liverpool Football Club are far more well known, have a far wider fan base, and therefore they get more coverage. So, so I think the uh, politically correct response, which is we try to be as balanced as we can, <laughs> is probably tempered by reality, which fundamentally says the newspaper is a business. It has to make money. And Dave's just sat there and he's read out three or four stories that are having maybe 50 to 100 percent more views. And they're boring stories. Yeah. Oh, no, no one's fighting in the dressing room, you know, or or we're playing Leipzig tomorrow or. You know, Virgil van Dijk's big toe's got a bloody wart on it or whatever it might be. And because because the cult has an insatiable desire to read stuff about, you know, the, 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 the people who are the objects of their cult, you know, so to speak. So so well done, Dave. Oh, I, didn't, thank you. I, I didn't believe a word you said, but honestly, <laughs> other than you try to be balanced, but yeah. commerciality is bound to make that difficult for you. I mean, I mean, I would ask you though, when did someone from uh, the football club last give you grief? I mean, you said people like Finch and others yeah. would be on your case, and I'd, I won't embarrass you by making you answer the question. But my own view would be, I suspect, not as often as they could or should. I don't know how many times they gift you stories. I don't know whether they give you greater access than other clubs do to compensate for the fact that we're coming from from a little way behind and. Yeah, I'll, it, I'll, I'll finish in a second, Dave, and let you, let yeah. you have a go. Because, but so, Dave, the same thing applies overseas in the global reach type thing. I think one thing that is evident amongst Evertonians is that you get more bang for your buck from Evertonians. You know, I mean, we're we're more connected, we're more engaged. It's what makes the echo chamber that is that is Twitter so horrible when we lose. Uh, you know, the Reds crawl out the woodwork, but they scurry back under their stones pretty damn quick because a lot of them have a tertiary understanding of the football club. 
you know, they are followers, not supporters, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so we have to exploit that and we have to build on the fact that we've got players like Hamez or, or Yerry Mina and, and focus in certain, you know, geographies because of the Spanish speaking, for example. North America clearly is a huge untapped. You know, I went to the, the very first um, uh, World Club Championship or whatever it was called, you know, in, in Martinez's day. Um, you know, in, in, I went to, to games in Miami and Everton just took the place over because we were so much more engaging and so on. But what pays for clicks and what brings in revenues is volume, you know, and, and, and clubs like Liverpool and Manchester United, they are on a different class, a different level to everybody else. And whilst it should be good for us to aspire to have the reach that they have, it's going to take a hell of a long time if it's even possible. So what we have to do is look where we are and say, we're going to be double that next year. And whatever it is next year, we're going to be double that the year after. And we still won't make a dent in the lead that they have over us, but we'll know that we're doing well. And I think what's pretty damning for the football club is that over the years, we've had some players who we could have levered, uh, you know, Tim Howard being Tim Cahill, those sorts of guys, and we've not done it. And now we have a manager that we can leave and we have a player in Hammers and Mina and, and, and others. And we need to really be bold and push on, you know, and I'm trying to avoid doing a bloody EBM speech here because we're <laughs> recording one in a couple of days. But, 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 but yeah, Dave, it, it just needs to be confidence driven. And, and for, you know, for Dave, the, the journalist, because we've got Dave, the podcaster, yeah, but Dave, the journalist, you know, as a professional, I'm sure you could think of ways that Everton could get, get more more content out there and 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 if only the club would trust perhaps more in the media um they, they'd get a better outcome yeah to be honest we do have a, a pretty good relationship with them at the moment uh, i think the guys on the ground are terrific i, I think yeah. it just needs to be pushed a bit harder yeah well i mean um you know to answer your question about uh, how often you know so we've been you know challenged by the, the football club i mean it happens frequently um I mean, a lot, it happened a lot uh, in the days of Robert Elston, but I think that was largely down to the fact that I think he was altogether too sensitive uh, at times and uh, verging on the paranoid. And, I, uh, I experienced that personally with my shareholders <laughs> hat on, so yeah, yeah, I can agree with that one. Yeah. But yeah, you know, so I, I was, you know, in inverted commas, invited down to Belfield to explain uh, myself and ourselves a number of times. Sam Allardyce, you know, sort of did that. Uh, Roberto Martinez did that. We were banned um, over something that Greg O'Keefe had written um, for the final game of the season um, against West Ham. Actually, 2013, that was. Wow, that was a long time ago. But that banning thing, Dave, that yeah. put you on the naughty step was oh. it, it just trivial, it, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. It was a, it, I mean, the, the story behind it was just like bizarre. I mean, I couldn't understand why Roberts had got so wound up by it, but he did. And, uh, you know, banned Greg and, you know, my, my then sports editor, John Thompson, said, well, you know, you can't ban him. If you're going to ban him, you know, none of us are going. And so we, ended up, we ended up going and watching it in the Bull and Joy, which was great. And it meant that we never had access to David Moyes after the game, which was a bit of a problem. But I've got David's phone number so we could ring him. So, like, it wasn't really a problem. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it was strange. So, yeah, we do, we do get challenged, you know, sort of frequently. But since Robert's gone, I like to think that the, the relationship has been a lot more open and a lot healthier. Um, you know, I go back a long way with Bill Kenwright and we've had major problems in the past. You know, so there's times when uh, he wouldn't even look at me when I walked into the stadium. But we've become friends, we've become close, you know, so, and I get criticised sometimes for being overly supportive of Bill. And, you know, so 
fine. Yeah, so I believe he's good for the football club, and I'll continue to say that because I think he is. Um, but Denise Barr at Baxendale has been, you know, sort of a real breath of fresh air as well. Uh, very open and very, you know, sort of engaging. And likewise, Richard Kenyon, um, who's now the, the head of the whole media team. So things are in a good place at the moment. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to write things that are going to upset them. We know it's going to happen, you know, so in time. But as long as we can do it in a grown-up, in an adult fashion, and realise that, you know, that we're not doing it with sinister motives or anything. We're doing it because we want the football club to succeed. And if we think they're doing things wrong, you know, so we, we'll try and point them, point that right, point that out. Uh, but yeah, fingers crossed, things are going in a good, good place at the moment. And you know, we certainly can't criticise them over the, the the stadium issues. Carlo Ancelotti was an inspired appointment. And despite, you know, some of the things that have happened this season, I still think we're largely going in the right direction. So, you know, fingers crossed, the majority of the content is going to be supportive rather than critical at the moment. And yeah. I hope that continues for a long time. And do, do you get the access you want, Dave? I mean, no, I, I, no, I, I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, one of the stock responses from anyone inside the fo any football club would be, of course, it doesn't matter what we do, we can never give the journalists what they want. Yeah. But, but, from afar, and maybe because I'm sort of you are Dave Dave Witch. You're like a a new a new media thing, aren't you? Because you're fan media and stuff like that, and fan media gets absolutely no access at all in 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 general terms. But people like Toffee TV are, are earning the right to get access, and the Blue Room do the same. And and I think that's only right that those who've been around the longest and have played the game, if you will, for the longest rather than Dave Witch turn up and say, hello, can I interview Carlo Ancelotti, please? Yeah. <laughs> but but I'd like to think the local journalists, you know, the, the guys who work for you, the Phil Kirkbrides in the past, the Greggs and, and, and Paddy and others, would get more access than, say, the national media. Do you think you get more? Uh, at the moment, no, we don't. I mean, uh, I know Phil's got his being in a bonnet about a number of, uh, you know, uh, invitations he's extended. Can I speak to this individual? Can I speak to that individual? And uh, you yeah. know, so hasn't been delivered. And I understand the world's in a strange place at the moment, and uh, it, it's difficult trying to set these things up. Um, but no, we, we'd like more. You know, so we certainly know we're never going to get the level of access that we had previously, and we totally accept that. Uh, but we certainly think we should get. Do you mean enjoying? Do you mean enjoying these times, or generally? During these times, yeah, during yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the pandemic times. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we'd like to think that we we get certainly more, or we would like to get more than the national, you know, sort of papers do. And you know, we always feel hard done by. We always feel that you know, so we haven't had you know, so what we we would like and what we think we deserve. Uh, but you know, we keep pushing, and you know, you know, they, they keep trying to deliver. But you know, we want more. You know, so we we think that we're going to give so much more detail and so much more depth uh, to any kind of Everton content than maybe, you know, so national papers will, who every now and then, if Everton are flavour of the month, they'll dip their toe in the water. Mm. And uh, Everton fans understandably get very wound up, you know, so certainly by, you know, so Sky TV coverage and uh, BT coverage and, you know, the way there always seems to be, you know, a former Liverpool player or a former Liverpool manager, you know, analysing Everton games. And, you know, I know Leon Osman and, you know, Tim Cahill occasionally, you know, so do uh, analysis uses but not often enough for our liking so yeah you know it's uh it, it's, it's funny balance. it's funny it's funny isn't it because I, I was quite refreshing to hear you talk about oh, in fact to use the word like that about Denise for example because yeah. the chalk and cheese to a degree between Robert and Denise and, and one of the things she said when we at the shareholders association first met with her you know when when Robert had gone and she'd stepped up was that she, she was going to do her damnedest to be more open and, and all yeah. those sorts of things. And notwithstanding the challenges 
around COVID and prior to that, what she can and can't say around stadiums and things. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's always tried with us at least to be accessible. Yeah. And, and, and we have our run-ins, it's inevitable because if, if you don't agree with everything someone else says, you're bound to have a run-in and vice versa. Yeah. But, but the, those run-ins don't last long and you still have the next quarterly meeting. And, uh, you know, and one of the things the club does do when they are with us, and I hope, in fact, I'll ask you, sorry, Dave, I'm taking your show over, mate, sorry, <laughs> um, is when you do get the access, it, it, yeah. it's like there's no boundaries. They, they, they'll take any question. You know, they don't give to us or don't ask that question because we won't like it or yeah. or, or anything. Um, and, and so they are very open. And, and give him his due. Robert was as well uh, when he was, wasn't being paranoid and kicking <laughs> you just because he, he yeah. someone had kicked him, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so do, do you find that as well, that once you do get the access, then it's not particularly restrictive and and you can do really yeah, insightful stories yeah yeah that's fine they, they, i think they trust i mean most of the footballers now are media trained so you know they, they know they're not going to fall into any kind of traps and uh, they do try and uh, you know, sort of keep some players away from the spies i know john philippe gabanin you know so phil wants yeah. to talk to him but the lad himself has said that he doesn't want to do any media until he's actually back playing again you yeah. know which we totally understand you know why would he want to put pressure on himself if that's the case mm -hmm. But no, I mean, generally, it's up to us to ask what we want, and it's up to the individuals themselves whether they want to answer us. I mean, when Marco Silva was manager, I did a sit-down with him, and I was trying to get a little bit more out of him about, you know, his personal life, about, you know, where he lived, about, you know, so whether he actually, you know, so met with Evertonians, where he was, the kind of stuff that Carlo delivered, you know, so as a matter of fact, and, you know, so talking to Evertonians there. But Marco was very, very reluctant to talk about it. He didn't want to give that level of detail up, which is fine. You know, he's, he's a nice enough guy, but he just didn't want to give that up. And I think he missed the trick there. I think he could have tried to, you know, sort of paint himself in a better light amongst Evertonians. I, I, I think but, you're right. Getting to getting to have known the man rather than yeah. the manager would have made a big difference, I think, for him. Exactly. You know, and, and I, because I sponsor some players and stuff, you get to go up to Finch Farm for that sponsor's lunch. And, and I took my great nephew along and, and he was brilliant. You know, he, he, he smiled. He was a the Portuguese. I mean, I lived and worked in Portugal for a while, and so he was the kind of Portuguese person I knew. Yeah. They love kids. They're always smiling. The the happy-go-lucky type of people. Maybe the pressure was off, but he always come across in the in his TV media interviews and the, you know the pre-match build-up stuff as this dour, miserable yeah. so and so. You know, and and you just don't see the the people the. And, and Carlo, I think you're right, has exposed far more of himself in that sense, that it makes him a person rather than just the, the head coach or, or, or the manager, yeah. And players could learn from that, I think, as well. Yeah, 100%. Dave, you know, obviously, in, in your book, you, you talk a lot about, you know, your relationships that you built over the years, you know, likes of Unsworth. And, and so, you, do you, mm -hmm. just building on what we've said there, do you think that that is a trick that's being missed at the moment? And do you think that that's should be part of Everton's DNA, you know, to really sell sell yourself, you know, to the city, to the people, uh, you know, and, and almost expose yourself as a person, you know, to get to know the ins and the outs of, of who you are. It's, it's, it's difficult, really, like I said earlier, because of the, you know, sort of the iPhone culture that, you know, so we, we live in now, uh, whereas, you know, players can't behave or, you know, sort of act the way they did previously. And, you know, I think journalists now accept they're never going to have the relationships that they had uh, or the kind of relationships I had. Although having said that, you know, so we've got Sam Carroll who works at our place now. 
who's uh, grown up with Matt Pennington, you know, so they were, you know, so childhood, you know, so friends who became close and uh, keep in touch all the time now. So Sam was gutted when he left the football club and, uh, you know, so started his career elsewhere. But yeah, that, that is becoming, you know, sort of less and less prevalent. And I, I understand why that's the case. And I understand why it probably won't ever happen again unless the circumstances are, you know, unique, like Sam was with Matty Pennington. So you wouldn't give up being a journalist while you were a journalist for to being a journalist today. It's fair to say, isn't it? Um yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean, I, d- I definitely got the best of it, and I'm led to believe that you know, so prior to my era, it was even better. Again, you know, so journalists in the in the 60s and 70s, you know, literally travelling everywhere with the team. Um, I mean, I was fortunate enough to experience that on pre-season tour uh, when the Echo was allowed, the Echo and the Daily Post was allowed to travel with the team on the same coach on the same planes, and you know, as a result, you get to know the players, you know, so personally. Uh, but you know that that's completely gone now. But you know, in the sixties and seventies, that happened routinely. Remember Howard Kendall telling me how he fell out with a, a guy at Manchester City who used to travel. Uh, the their local MEN reporter used to travel on the team bus everywhere with the team. And uh, when Howard became manager in nineteen ninety two or three, was it at Manchester City? No, nineteen ninety one. First thing he did was, oh well, we can't have this. You know, so we, we need to keep you know local journalists. Uh, you know arm's length and Howard was a consummate media operator I mean he was brilliant for the Echo but even for him that was like a step too far uh, that, that caused a major issue with him but yeah you know it, it's just constantly you know bit by bit year by year changed and they've become more and more distant footballers I mean to the point now where I mean footballers earn so much money that you know they don't even live in the real world you know whereas when I first started going in the 1970s, footballers and a bit more than your average working man, they'd live in a lovely semi-detached house in Bagal and they'd have a Fort Capri on the path rather than the Ford Escort. Uh, but you'd see them out locally, you'd see them, you know, sort of drinking in pubs and in restaurants. Nowadays, footballers live in these gated mansions behind walls with security patrolling the premises and stuff. And you very, very rarely see them, you know, sort of mixing with the general population. And that saddens me a little bit, you know, so because they're just normal lads, you know, so lads who've gone to school with everybody else and had a talent for football and probably would, you know, be able to, to mix, you know, so well with, you know, so punters if they're allowed to. But the world's changed. So if you're, if you're a blue listening, um, to this, uh, how do they go about getting your book then? Uh, I, know, I believe it's, it's in all good bookstores. <laughs> that, that's the phrase, isn't it? In all good bookshops, yeah. It's uh, when they open again, <laughs> uh, quite when that will be, who knows. Uh, but failing that, I mean, yeah, you can get it online, but the best place to get it personally, I would say, is the, the Reach Sport bookstore because last time I looked, it was 40% off, and uh, I think it still is. So you can get it for a decent. They're trying price. to sell you there, Dave. <laughs> it's been like that since you know since, the, since it started. To be honest, I don't really know why they're trying to give it away. <laughs> I think it's the psychology of how they sell books. Everything's discounted, even though it you know it's still. How much is it, Dave? It's I couldn't you even gather. Tell. I've not read it yet, but I will. Yeah, I, I couldn't even tell you. Let's have a little look. I've got one in front of me now. Uh, 1499 40% off that, whatever that is. You know, so my maths has never been particularly good. So uh, about 11 quid. It's a bit about eight quid then. Yeah, yeah well, fair enough. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's weird because, well, obviously, when you do a book, you know, you, you, you're given an advance. And then if you get over that advance, you know, figure, uh, you make a little bit more money on top of that. And uh, the advance figure was reached uh, over Christmas. So I, I was quite pleased with, you know, so how well it went. You're not retiring then, no? Uh, no, 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 no time soon. <laughs> Not on the proceeds of this. 
But it's, it's been so well received. I need to think of a follow-up. You know, what, what can I do to try and follow it up? I don't know. It's taken me 30 years to produce that, so maybe not any time soon. The journey to Bramley Moor, that would be good. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Very much so. <laughs> so, um, well, just, just to say, I've read it and it, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm sometimes, I've got, I, I can never concentrate for too long. And I've got to say, I, I, I did with that, you know, really enjoyed oh, it. Thank so. you very much. That's the last to be blown smoke anyway. But. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the, 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 there's the issue of a, a massive game this week uh, for Everton. Um, and it's that time of year again. I think we play Man City on Wednesday, aren't we? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then we've got the uh, the 237 Merseyside derby, obviously on uh, was it Saturday after. Um, so um, big games, aren't they? We we do tend to, to to you know the ones we do expect to win, we we don't. And what 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 do we need to do to ensure we don't have another Sunday? And I'll, I'll start with you, John. There. Um, what what do you think is that your biggest priority? Are we can. We, we can ensure that we're not going to... Um, I think Sunday was really complicated because you've you know, got a whole raft of things like fatigue, changes in position, changing the centre-backs, probably the wrong form, a whole host of things, you know. You know the upfield, you know, the manager and his staff didn't perform up to scratch either, did they? So if they all revert back to normal, that would be good, yeah. Um, I, I think for reasons known only to statisticians we do better away from home than than we do at home um and and i just think if the recovery times are sufficient then we can perhaps sadly with the exception of who we're playing next mm. we can beat anyone on our day yeah um so so as i sit here and i ran it through my computer model earlier on and sadly because of our poor home record and who we're playing it we're expected to get a, a tonking by city um, but the same program says we're going to win away at, at, at the other lot. Oh, um, I'll take that all day long. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think many of us would say, you know, I mean, I was saying before Sunday's game, it was beat Fulham and the City game becomes a free hit. I think we've got to treat it as a free hit anyway and, and, and try and play without any stresses and strains and, and, and just play our game and, and see how it pans out and, and then have a little bit, bit of a rest before we play the RS and beat them. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Be nice. Yeah. Uh, that's that's Mashiri's expected losses speech, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But um, I think there'll be, be very few Evertonians expecting us uh, to, to get a result on Wednesday. So why why not play without pressure and actually surprise everyone and get one? Yeah. And surprisingly, I mean, if you look at the table, we are, despite that, that terrible performance and blip, uh, we are still there and thereabouts where, where you'd expect yeah. us probably to be at the start of the season, obviously with the games in hand. Um, are you concerned at this moment, Preno, you know, going into this week or, or do you think, you know, Everton are going to, you know, pull something out of the bag? Oh, they've been so unpredictable all season. Yeah, I am concerned largely because we've got such little recovery time from Wednesday mm. through to Saturday. Um, Liverpool have got the benefit of having a, an extra day to prepare, although admittedly they're travelling back from Budapest, which isn't ideal. Um, you know, normally you'd say that, yeah, this is a great time to get at them because their confidence is shattered because uh, they've got obvious problems, you know, so with the injuries. You know, did you know they had injuries? You wouldn't have known that, would you, from, um, from what they've been saying? Thankfully, but, we don't have any, Dave. That's okay. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, normally it would be a great time to get at them, but equally, so was the FA Cup tie last season at Anfield. Yeah. You know, so if ever there was a time that we should have, you know, so put that, you know, so jinx to rest, it was then. 
and uh, and we didn't. So I, I genuinely don't know, but we are set up to you know sort of counter attack teams to try and uh, get results you know sort of away from home against the team that presses high that comes onto you, which is what Liverpool do. And their intensity levels are being poor this season compared to what they've been like, you know, sort of in previous levels, you know, when these mentality monsters, you know, so we're all over teams. So maybe it's a bit more unpredictable than it ought to be. But just the spectre of that game on Wednesday night, which is going to take plenty out of us because City are so relentless and they do, you know, sort of basically pass teams to death. And we're going to have to work really, really hard to try and stay with them. And I'll be capable then of recovering from an 8.15 kickoff on a Wednesday to, you know, a 5.30 kickoff only, well, less than 72 hours later. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm worried. But then again, I'm always worried about derbies, you know, so I, I hate them. If someone said to me, you can have a draw two times a series and not play them, I'd take that all day long. But then again, that would deny you the opportunity to wildly celebrate the very rare occasions when it does happen. And uh, I love those occasions. So, it's got to end sometime. I don't know. Will it be this Saturday? Let's wait and see. He Keep sighed. the faith, Dave. Keep the faith. <laughs> Thanks, chap. So I'm just going to end on, uh, I'm not going to pin you for scores, but I'll pin you for predicted points over the next two games. John, I'll start with you. How many games are we getting over them two games? How many points? Yes. Well, three. Three. Okay. That, mean, that means win one, lose one, doesn't it? Yeah, that's fair enough. Wow. And what about yourself, uh, Fredo? One. I can't see. I can't see us getting anything on Wednesday. But I'm going. I'm going for us to frustrate them on Saturday. Right. As soon as I put this podcast podcast out there, I'm logging out to Twitter for a week, and I'll come back. <laughs> back in a fortnight, Sam, because it can't bear anymore. Oh uh, dear. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that rounds up the, the podcast. Uh, so a big thanks to yourself, uh, John and uh, Dave, for coming on today. Uh, it's you know lots of interesting detail there. Um, bit of breaking news an issue of a book and uh, some predictions moving forward. Um, so uh, it's been a pleasure. I hope you've all enjoyed listening for today uh, and we should be back this time next week with our next episode. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be Watching the ships roll in Then I watch them roll away again yeah. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Waiting the tide I left my home in Georgia, headed for the Bristol Bay. I've had nothing to live for. It looked like nothing's gonna come my way. So I'm just gonna sit on the dark little bay, watching the tide roll away. I'm sitting on a dock of a bay, wasting time. Look like nothing's gonna change. Everything still remains the same. I can't do what ten people tell me to do. So 
can hear her rest in my bones. And this loneliness won't leave me alone. It's two thousand miles I roam. Just to make this not my home. Now I'm just going to sit at the dock of a bay. Watching the tide roll away. Ooh, yeah. Sitting on a dock of a bay. Wasting time. Yeah. 